Welcome to Health Matters, Sonoma's weekly program devoted to health and well-being. Each week through interviews, editorials, and listener participation, we will explore topics and issues of contemporary medicine and its relationship to the lifestyles of our community. Our goal is to provide you with information and resources to help you achieve and maintain what you deserve, a happy, healthy, and productive life. I'm your host, Dr. Ned Hoke, a veteran in natural methods healthcare, speaking with you today from Sonoma Valley, California, for an hour of health topic digestion and discussion. Please stay with us. And welcome back, Health Matters listeners. Thank you for tuning in again this uh, lovely, shiny, beautiful day. Uh, for regular listeners, you know that We've been kind of getting ready for this day's event. We're having a doctor, a Professor Sunaina Myra and her book called Boycott, The Academy and Justice for Palestine. And I've been particularly uh, thrilled to have the opportunity to think about this particular book and what uh, Professor Myra has to say to us. And so she'll be with us presumably in a few moments and uh, we'll get a chance to hear her in, in person. Um, the, the story of Palestine is the story that touches lots of people in lots of different ways. Uh, it's something that we see in the newspaper and in the, in the uh, TV representations and so on. We see a lot of horrific photographs of Israeli plum pummeling the Palestinian people. And what does this all mean? And what, is it, what, does, what does it mean to us as Americans? And what does it mean to us as people who have a, some association with the civil rights and universal human rights. What, how, does it, how do these things come together? And what Professor Myra writes about is that topic. And she's uh, one of the founding members of a thing called BDS, Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement. It's something similar for those of you who remember what happened in South Africa. South Africa had their, their apartheid state set up where the uh, local population, the native populations were pummeled into submission and uh, by the, uh, the white settlers. And it was a settler colonial environment and the, uh, there was some pushback and that turned into an apartheid. And all around the world, uh, different groups, slowly at first and slowly they brought together an ever larger and ever larger uh, pushback to that state of affairs where businesses stopped doing business with the white colonial settlers of South Africa. It was more complicated than that, but that, that was a lot of what happened. And this put a kind of pressure into the system that obliged the ultimately the, rele the release of Nelson Mandela and uh, the becoming of the, uh, of the new state of South Africa. Well, it's not too, too much to hope to imagine that something might like that might happen. And even though much of what happens in the Middle East seems hopeless, listening to Professor Myra write and talk about this topic, it suddenly, for me, seems not so hopeless. And this is a path of possibility, a path of choice, a path of using a higher form of persuasion to the neoliberal colonialists and the imperialists to... Uh, to come at it, uh, situations a different way. And uh, as uh, I should, I, there's several quotes that I could read. Uh, one of them, let's see if I can find it. 
they're all sitting here in front of me, but of course, naturally, it's all sort of disorganized. Um, Omar Barghouti, one of the famous uh, Palestinian speakers, he said, if ever there was a time for boycott and divestment and sanctions against Israel's system of oppression, it's now. Israel's official adoption of apartheid opens the door for Palestinian people. Arab nations and and the allies around the world to pressure the UN to activate the anti-apartheid laws and impose serious sanctions on Israel and like those imposed on an apartheid South Africa. We shall double our uh, efforts to grow the, the BDS movement for Palestinian rights and to hold Israel accountable for all of its crimes against our people. No Israel law will erase our right to self-determination in our own homeland and our right of refugees to return home. No Israeli far-right government, with all the blind support it receives from the xenophobic and outright fascist forces in the United States and Europe, will ever extinguish our aspirations for freedom, justice, and equality. That's a pretty straightforward statement, and uh, I think Professor Meyer, like I say, will be with us shortly and have your own views on that topic. Um, let me just go right to the text itself because it's uh, it's it's, uh, it's very nicely written as well. Of course, I always like books that are nicely written, as many of our regular listeners. Something unthinkable happened in the United States in the last few years. Hundreds of academics, senior scholars, and graduate students and untenured faculty came forth to support an academic boycott of Israel. Beginning in 2013, the movement to boycott in Israeli academic institutions expanded rapidly into one major academic association after another, endorsing the boycott and adapting resolutions in solidarity with the Palestinian call for academic boycott. But this movement emerged several years after Palestinian academics, intellectuals, and activity called for an academic and cultural boycott in 2004. After years of military occupation, failed peace negotiations, and ever-expanding illegal Jewish settlements in Palestinian land, ongoing home demolitions, the building of Israeli wall, repression and military assaults, all of these events in the military occupation of Palestine itself has been endorsed, defended, and funded by Israeli major global ally, the United States. The academic boycott and the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement are thus embedded in a significant aspect of the U.S. political and historical relationship to the Mideast, and in particular the cultural imaginary of Palestine. Palestine and the Arabs in general has thus become an increasingly central concern for American studies. Our our guest was an American studies teacher. What the significance of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions and academic boycott activism in particular for the U.S. Academy and for the social justice movements, what is that, question mark? What political paradigms are introduced by the academic boycott, and how has this transformed the debate about Palestine-Israel in the United States, and in the academy in particular? I focus on the academic boycott as a social movement that is at the intersection of the anti-war, human rights, global justice, organizing in the university and beyond, and increasingly embedded in anti-racist, feminists, and queer movements as well. This is a new perspective in existing literature in, on the academic boycott. But I will show how it's, it, it emerges from the politics of BDS when analyzed as a progressive social movement from its rich and dramatic history 
in challenging the status quo in the United States. She goes on and says, what is the academic boycott? The Palestinian uh, campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel, PACBI, issued a call in 2004 for a boycott of the academics and artists until Israel complied with international law by ending the apartheid, right, that, ending the occupation and colonialization of all Arab lands, occupied in June 67 and dismantling the wall. And here's our guest. Welcome to Health Matters. Thank you for joining us. Hello, Dr. Hoke. How are you? Okay. Well, we're just, we've just been reading from your introduction. And so our, our uh, listeners are well, hopefully be- beginning, beginning to be warmed up to our topic. So, uh, so anyway, we're, we're so happy, as I told you in my email, that we've been talking about you and your work now for several weeks because I was so uh, thrilled to read the, the kind of the, the meaning of what you were talking about in terms of the, uh, as I was driving over here to the station, I was thinking to myself, you know, every time I've heard Net- Net- Netanyahu's voice, it just made me mm-hmm. so angry that I just, I almost mm-hmm. feel like exploding. And, and yours is perhaps the first voice that has somehow penetrated me past my anger about that. And my, dis- <laughs> my and, and my despair about that of, of being you know mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, unable to to make something different and and so so you can see what you've done for me you've, you've psychologically you you've saved me from some uh, very unpleasant feelings on a regular basis so you, <laughs> I'm delighted to hear that and I'm so gratified thank you for your words I really right. appreciate and I can relate to your response and your feelings about the current situation you right. know right well this is the fourth book that uh, the the US press UC press excuse me American Studies mm. now series uh, and your mm-hmm. your book the fourth the boycott on the academic and academy and justice for Palestine is our principal mm-hmm. topic today so the the critical histories of the present is the stated uh, purpose of the series. Can you begin by saying something about how this particular book came about? Sure. Well, you know, there is a short answer and a long answer, as always. And the short answer is, is connected to the long answer in as much as this particular series for UC Press was edited by two leading scholars in American studies who have both been past presidents of the National American Studies Association. And mm. so they, of course, have a vision for the field. And I think it became very apparent to them um, that, you know, the question of Palestine and its relationship to the United States and U.S. Academy is really of paramount importance and has become increasingly significant for U.S. academics. And one of the most dramatic examples of the the importance of this question and of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement for American studies, you know, became clear with the endorsement by this association of the academic boycott of Israel. And in fact, the series editors, Lisa Dugan and Curtis Maris, have both been, you know, very principled in their commitment um, to American studies as a field that should lift up issues of oppression, you know, both domestically and globally. And so they invited me as a national boycott organizer to write this book um, from the perspective of someone who has been involved in the BDS movement, the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions movement, and also to kind of illuminate how it touches on some key concerns in U.S. society today. Um, And so that's 
kind of how it came about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, very, it, it sounds very coherent. So mm-hmm. um, for our listeners' benefit, can you mention something about your own personal heritage and background and how you, what, what, what is it began your interest in the, social, the world of social and political justice? I mean, that's a big sweeping kind of question, but might tell us mm-hmm. I mean, uh, a little bit about kind of where you were born, where you, how you kind of grew up a little bit, and kind of when you began to hear this, the drumbeat of this particular topic. Sure. You know, I think that's actually a really interesting um, question in relation to this particular issue, because I grew up in India. And in India, we have a particular sympathy in general with other nations that are fighting for sovereignty and national liberation and having engaged in a long struggle to overthrow British colonization. For me, it's kind of a no brainer (laughs) that having had the privilege of living in an independent nation state that I should support other communities' struggle for national sovereignty as well. And I think in that regard, the Palestine issue to me is very simple. You know, people always say, oh, it's so complicated, it's so complicated, it'll never be solved. And I and I see it, it's a really, it's a very simple question. And so, you know, having said that, there's also... Um, you know, kind of long and rich historical context of India's affiliation and solidarity with the PLO and with the Palestinian national struggle as a non-aligned country, as a kind of newly decolonized country. Um, And so growing up, I think, you know, and, and, and increasingly also, you know, kind of unpacking some of the Zionist propaganda that did make its way to the shores of India. I grew up reading Exodus and all of these books mm-hmm. that really occlude the history of what's happening in Palestine. I think I came to an understanding that this was a really important issue. But when I got to the United States and I came here for undergraduate education and then did my graduate study here, I was really shocked to find that one was not allowed to speak about Palestine. <laughs> I mean, I was literally told, Ned, you know, when I was in graduate school here in the U.S., do not utter the P word. Don't touch the Palestine issue. Don't do it until you get tenure. Don't do it until you get the major grant that you want to get. Maybe don't do it until you become a full professor because you will lose your job. You will be considered a pariah. You will be attacked. You'll be harassed. You'll be bullied. You'll be defamed. And so it was that kind of like, you know, disjuncture contradiction between a society in one which could openly and freely talk about Palestine, which, by the way, is most societies in the world, you know, except ours and a few other nation states in Europe, and a context in which I was basically being told that, you know, uh, I would be taking a great academic risk and causing harm to my academic career if I dared to engage in an honest discussion about Palestine. And so during the Second Intifada, um, I was in Boston, and, you know, there is actually a very vibrant Palestinian justice movement in the Boston area and in Massachusetts, which I became engaged with, and I began meeting people who had come back from Palestine during the Second Intifada. I met with a faith-based delegation led by a very principled um, Episcopalian minister at the time, and I was actually listening to their testimonials and helping them transcribe it, and I was horrified learning about the massacres in the refugee camps, such as Janine, about, you know, kind of the daily violence that was being inflicted on this really helpless, you know, occupied population. And I think that was the turning point for me. So probably around, you know, 2001, 2002. Mm-hmm. So having grown up in India, and then you you came as a, as a student, I guess you say, to do your undergraduate work. So going back a little further than that, so talk a little bit about what part of India you're from and kind of how how are your parents looking at <laughs> what do your mom and dad say about you taking the stands that you are i mean are are these people who are themselves uh 
similarly inclined, or are you kind of a, a, a brand new branch of the family in terms of what you're doing? Oh, they're fully supportive. I mm. mean, you know, my parents are of the post-independence generation, mm-hmm. right? I mean, India, you know, got its independence in 1947, and I think for that generation that grew up in the area of non-aligned solidarity, they get it. Um, mm-hmm. And so, in fact, I think they have also traveled to Palestine. You know, I have lived there. They've met me there. Um, and so it's not an issue. I mean, I think, you know, if, if you're interested in, you know, kind of the personal perspective for many Palestine solidarity activists, I think the one that is the most contested and the most charged is obviously that of Palestine solidarity activists who are Jewish American and who do have you know, really intense and painful and emotional schisms and conflicts with their family, given Mm -hmm. the kind of entrenchment of Zionism in the Jewish American community. I mean, in my case, that's really was not relevant at all. Um, So, yeah, so it's it's not at all been an issue. Um, I will say that I think as India has also increasingly you know, become a bastion of right-wing populism. And, um, you know, there is a kind of a Hindu supremacist party in India that is in power that has an alliance with um, Israel, that has a lot of sympathy for Zionism and for Netanyahu. Um, I think with that kind of shift in Indian politics, it is true that I think one can no longer assume that Indians, you know, given their past, will actually be automatically in support of Palestine because there's growing Islamophobia, and I think anti-Arab racism also in India with this kind of hard right turn. Um, And so in that context, I mean, there's a whole other discussion we could have about the ways in which, you know, Zionism is also seeping into Hindu Indian immigrant communities, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. right here also in California. Right. Well, what brought my question, of course, a little bit was having grown up sort of cheek by jowl with, with the Jewish community, even though I'm mm. a pretty much 100% wasp, um, mm. but I had many associations with uh, with Jewish people as a young person, and and one of the things I heard over and over again was this slavish uh, in, in, uh, engagement with 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 uh, with Israel, and and uh, lots of money involved, and lots of, uh, but then and, and of course I grew up in the 50s, and when we grew up in the 50s, we mm. had all these luscious pictures of. People in kibbutzes and people going back to <laughs> right. the land, and we and we were told mm. we were told this wonderful story about you know a, a land for a people for a people without a land you know and then we right you know we we got fed that and but we need to take a break actually so we'll be able to come back and talk some more. You pronounce your last name Myra. Sure. Yes. Exactly. Sunaina Myra. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. well, I'll be back with Professor Sunana Myra. She's a professor of Asian American Studies, UC Davis. She's also the co-director of the Mellon Initiative on Comparative Border Studies. We'll talk about that a little bit. She's also the author of our book today, our, our focus, Boycott, The Academy and Justice for Palestine. Please stay with us. We'll be back with you in just a moment. The Sonoma Weather Report is brought to you by the Vintners at Vine Alley. The Vintners of Sonoma Vine Alley offer a variety of wines and experiences to allow you to relax, enjoy life, and not have to leave downtown Sonoma. Located on East Napa Street between Broadway and First Street East, the wineries include Passaggio, Fulcrum, McLaren, Westwood, Sonoma Loeb, Cahoon Galadia, Inkadoo, and Black Knight, all in one little alley. 
Thank you for listening. This is KSBY, your voice of the valley, the 16th of August, a Thursday. Some of the programming highlights here this morning on KSBY at 10 a.m. It's all about you. At 1 p.m. this week in politics and at 3 o'clock, it's all about your health matters. Checking our climate, we have that widespread haze continuing with hot temperatures today, 97 degrees, and the sun trying to scorch through that haze. Clear tonight, 58 the low on Friday. Sunny, hot, high near 100 degrees. And with that, keep listening to KSVY. We'll keep you cool and informed. And welcome back to Health Matters. Dr. Ned Hoke today joined by Dr. Sunaina Myra and her book, uh, A Boycott, The Academy and Justice for Palestine. So, Sunaina, um, moving on to the topic itself a little bit more, you... Uh, July 18, 2018, the, the Israel Knesset authorized Basic Law Israel as, as a nation state for the Jewish people and unambiguously defined Israel as a state belonging exclusively to the Jewish people. Please tell us what exactly that means for the Palestinian native population, if you would. Yeah, you know, this is really um, striking and disturbing. And I have to know that it's one in a long series of laws that... Israel has passed that actually uh, denies um, Palestinian sovereignty and full citizen rights. And so, on the one hand, for the Palestinian population inside Israel, there are already um, about 50 laws um, that actually discriminate them, discriminate against them, you know, on a daily basis in different, you know, facets of life um, that actually make them second, if not third class citizens um, of Israel. And so this law categorically declares Israel to be a Zionist state that privileges only people of Jewish background. I think it just makes it very clear and transparent. I mean, it's something that, you know, people have known all along, but I think that in the U.S., you know, public debate, sometimes there's a hesitation to point out that Israel is a state that is built on racial privilege and racial supremacy, which is why South Africans have likened it to an apartheid state. And so I think that, you know, the system of everyday um, racial discrimination, racial segregation, and racial control that underlies, you know, the concept of apartheid is, you know, implemented in Israel on a daily basis. And so for Palestinian citizens inside Israel, who are about 20% of the population, they are basically denied the same rights as Jewish citizens um, to housing, healthcare, education, employment, you know, political expression, and so on. In fact, they are also not even allowed to have a nationality. So the interesting thing is on the passports um, of Palestinian citizens of Israel, their citizenship is Israeli, but their nationality is blank, whereas Jews are allowed to have a Jewish nationality. Wow, I didn't know that. And so wow. a, that's right. It's a very interesting point. It's like no other state in the world. I mean, the, the fact is that anybody, any Jewish individual anywhere in the world, you know, from Sonoma or from San Ramon or from Brooklyn, can move to Israel tomorrow and order, automatically become a citizen and actually get subsidized housing, great education. You know, there are certain social welfare services that Israel does provide its own citizens. But a Palestinian who might be, you know, historically from Palestine, whose family lived in Palestine for generations and has been on the land for hundreds of years, cannot actually move from Brooklyn or San Ramon to Palestine and enact a legal right of return as a displaced population. Um, and so there's a whole host of issues that have culminated in this law that I think is rightly getting 
a lot of attention and hopefully criticism. It happens in the context, of course, of Trump having recently declared, you know, unilaterally that he's going to move the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem from its legitimate, you know, um, location in Tel Aviv, which is, again, violating the principle of sovereignty of the Palestinians and of the Israelis to negotiate, you know, what the capital of a future independent Palestinian state might be. Um, And so I think in this context, you know, your outrage and despair over Netanyahu is, you know, really understandable. But, you know, Ned, there's just one point. I just quickly want to go back to the point you made before the PSA about, you know, as you said, this kind of like... um, wholesale allegiance to Israel and the Jewish American community. I think that is breaking down in the younger generation. And I think that Jewish Americans were also really outraged by this law and by the move, you know, of the embassy as well as by Netanyahu about as by the recent, you know, massacre that took place in Gaza. And I think that for a long time, you know, Jewish identity has been conflated with allegiance to Israel, which also really, in a sense, is anti-Semitic. If you think about it, it assumes this entire population can only think with one mind and blindly will, you know, support a nation state and all of its policies and give it full impunity. And so Mm -hmm. I do think there's a shift that is happening that all the polls, you know, show in the younger generation of Jewish Americans, which is heartening. Well, there and there you are in the academy at UC Davis. So presumably you're rubbing up against this all the time. And, (laughs) you know, but let's let's go to a synopsis of the boycott movement, how it began and kind of when you know, when you became centrally involved in the U.S. version, I realize, again, that's a sweeping uh, kind of thing, but mm-hmm. you've, you speak to it quite well, so I don't have to worry. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So, you know, the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement um, was officially launched in 2005 by over 170 Palestinian civil society organizations. So, you know, women's committees, trade unions, um, feminist groups, educational um, groups, student um, groups, um, put forth this call for BDS, as it's called. Um, But in 2004, a year before, there had also been a call by a group of intellectuals and academics in Palestine for an academic and cultural boycott of Israel. And I want to note that, you know, this call for BDS from Palestinians came sort of as an admission a failure, in a sense. I mean, if you think about it, BDS is a strategy of last resort, you know, so kind of going back to that despair that you were expressing earlier, many people in the international community, you know, feel this despair that nothing can stop Israel. You know, it's practically a rogue state. It commits war after war. It violates human rights laws. It violates immigration laws. It violates civil rights laws. And yet somehow nobody and nothing can stop it. Um, And the fact that, you know, the pipeline the oxygen basically is supplied to this um, illegal military occupation in Israel by the United States puts a big responsibility on U.S. and people overseas to try to pressure Israel to comply with international human rights law. So it is kind of a tactic of last resort and I think it's important to note that the principles of the BDS movement are that the boycott, divestment and sanctions of Israel against Israel should stay in place until First, it ends its occupation and colonization of Arab lands and dismantles the illegal apartheid wall, the separation wall. Two, Israel should recognize the rights of Palestinian citizens of Israel to racial equality. And three, it should respect the rights of Palestinian refugees to return to their homes um, as endorsed by the United Nations. And so these three principles have provided a really crucial framework for the Palestine Solidarity Movement. And so basically, 
you know, the concept of BDS is that people in the international community outside Palestine can can put pressure on Israel by basically withdrawing their support because, you know, we, uh, you know, support Israeli corporations, Israeli institutions, Israeli cultural propaganda in numerous ways um, in our lives, but we can sort of, you know, cut, you know, pull the plug, um, as it were. And so I became involved with the BDS movement, um, to answer the second part of your question, um, you know, around 2008, 2009, Israel was committing one of its serial wars on Gaza at the time. You know, about 1,300 people were slaughtered. And there were a group of us academics in California, actually, who also began to despair and feel like, you know, we weren't doing enough. I mean, you know, this was happening with our tax dollars that we were paying, you know, the United States funding the occupation. um, And we need to do something um, to kind of step up our solidarity. And so we responded to the call from our Palestinian, you know, colleagues and counterparts um, who live under lockdown in Palestine and decided to launch the U.S. campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel in 2009. Let's let's take that apart a little bit because it's a thing of pieces. And you're part of the academic, at least as I understand it, you're part of the academic version of this. But there, but boycott, divestment, and sanctions, those are three distinct words. And so they mean kind of they, they come at the situation through many different venues. So first, perhaps if you kind of have to describe the sort of the academic element of it so that our listeners know specifically, for instance, that you're... that you're boycotting institutions, you're not boycotting individuals, for instance, and you're boycotting institutions academically that have have been known to have direct relation to supporting the Israeli state, etc. So let's say something about that generally, and then if you would please broaden your reply into the the other issues, the the divestment issues, the the sanction issues, so our listeners get a feeling of the sweep of 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 the effort, if you would. Sure, absolutely. No, I think that's really important to kind of distinguish. So, you know, when people talk about BDS, you know, basically they're really talking about B and D. So in reality, you know, it's boycott and divestment that most individuals and kind of people in conscience, community members can enact. Sanctions is something that's generally enacted by states. So, you know, the United States is sanctioning Iran, is sanctioning right. North Korea, but, and so on. Right. Um, but B and D are the ones that are most relevant to your listeners. And in that regard, the boycott also has different um, elements. So there's the academic boycott, there's the cultural boycott, and there's the consumer boycott, or the economic boycott. There's also a sports boycott, which I would fold under cultural boycott because it takes place in the sphere of public culture. In terms of the academic boycott, um, as you pointed out, I think it's crucial to emphasize that it's a boycott of institutions. It's not a boycott of individuals. No one, Palestinians are not calling for a boycott of individual Israeli scholars in um, this uh, PACB, the Palestinian Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel campaign. They are calling on people to withdraw their support and end their complicity with Israeli academic institutions. Now, why is this important and why is it effective? Israeli universities, one, are generally state-controlled. They're nearly all public universities. Two, no Israeli university has ever publicly condemned the occupation or any of Israel's human rights violations and wars and violence. Um, And three, the academy is a very important sphere of legitimizing a nation state. You know, Israel likes to project this image of itself as a Western-like model of liberal democracy and even kind of multicultural, you know, inclusiveness and diversity. And so it's really important to kind of uh, basically kind of, you know, tear off that 
propaganda and shred it, if you will, um, by pointing out that the academy is an institution that upholds these, um, you know, abuses of human rights and these um, uh, racist um, practices um, of this apartheid state. And I think given that, um, you know, academic research is so crucial for militarization and border control and surveillance, there are also many um, academic projects in Israel that are directly providing the technology and research that is needed for the Israeli military, for the apartheid wall, and for, you know, uh, Israel's ongoing warfare. Um, so that's another reason. Um, there are Israeli universities that are built on stolen Palestinian land, such as Hebrew University, um, and there's ongoing repression and disciplining and harassment of Palestinian students at Israeli universities. So there is an academic freedom for um, Palestinian students inside Israel. And then in the context of the occupied West Bank and also in the context of Gaza, which is still under siege, Palestinian students and scholars also don't have academic freedom because Israel denies them freedom of movement. They cannot travel easily to schools or college or for research. They cannot get out of Israel for research or if they get fellowships or to go to conferences. And so the academic boycott is a tool that academics can use by refusing to go on a study abroad in Israel program, for example, as a staff person or as a student, by refusing to attend a conference based at an Israeli academic institution, by refusing to get a grant from the Israeli National Science Foundation, and so on. Well, and you and you write that the Israel is quite active in terms of pushing back, in terms of trying to, well, even be, perhaps even before BDS, that they were busy trying. They're they're, they're they have a whole system of cultivating various levels of uh, United States society and their free trips and this and that. And you write about how that part of what you just kind of, I'm just repeating, repeating what you said, how this is part of what the, your boycott is, is just not submitting to that particular um, uh, the, uh, gui guidance and, 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 and propaganda coming out of the Israeli state. But the, what the book does for me is it, is it, is it, uh, pretty carefully uh, sort of cuts through layers of, of, of different levels of that, that the Israeli state is using to continue to convince uh, the world population and, and, and certainly the United States population that they're busy, you know, being the good guy and being the, being the you know, being our, our man on site in terms of the Middle East. And after all, we've got to get oil and therefore we have to have this tough guy there doing the thing. Right. But um, the, the, the uh, uh, the the challenge of of kind of breaking through the the sort of uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to get to the the uh, the animal spirits of of, so, of of settler colonialism. One of the things you you, you do mm -hmm. such a nice do such a nice job mm -hmm. with is that you mm -hmm. you remind us that hey the Americans guess what how do you suppose we got <laughs> control of this country mm -hmm. we wiped mm -hmm. out the natives well what do you suppose the Israelis are doing they're wiping out the natives so in a sense the like I say the the uh, the the animal spirits of an imperial capitalism are so completely and perfectly aligned with that activity that 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 to that to move the conversation of, away from that particular natural place that natural set point for american consciousness and thinking oh well it's too bad that 
Israelis are not being very nice about it, but after all, this is what we do. We're Americans. We right. we take over. So you've written a, right. written a good deal about imperialism. You've written about since 9-11. Mm-hmm. You wrote a book, a book called 9-11 something or other. I can't remember the rest of it. Mm-hmm. But So tell mm-hmm. us a little bit how 9-11 and, mm-hmm. and imperialism are, are germane to mm-hmm. this and, and kind of help me mm-hmm. understand how BDS is sort of successfully pushing back on some of that. Right. You know, that's the crux of the issue. You know, Dr. Hoke, I think you really nailed it. And I really appreciate you introducing the notion of settler colonization, because I think too often there is this euphemistic language that is used about the conflict. I really have grown so tired of that term, because a conflict suggests there are two equal parties that have this issue that they're trying to work out. It's not a conflict. I mean, better still, it is an occupation that is illegal, but it is really a problem of settler colonization. And the mythology of a land without a people for a people without a land is exactly, you know, it echoes the kind of settler, you know, um, mythology that undergirds, you know, U.S., um, you know, settlement of um, North America as well. So I think there's an affinity there, and I think the inability to see this as a problem of settlers coming in and dispossessing the native Palestinians and expelling them and kicking them out from their land, you know, with the use of violence and continuing to do so, you know, it's been going on, you know, for since 1948 is, I think, really important. And for me, um, as I mentioned before, I think as a subject of a post-colonial state, this was really the basis of my affinity and solidarity, because Palestine is one of the last colonized places on earth, right? I mean, it's really tragic that we still have colonies. We do, of course, have U.S. colonies, too. But I think BDS is germane to this because I think when you think about the three, three principles of BDS that I just outlined earlier, and you look at the implications of these, so ending the occupation and colonization of all Arab lands and dismantling the walls. If Zionists were to basically end their occupation and their military control and domination, if they were to recognize the rights of Palestinian citizens and Israel would become a state that actually was not based on racial and religious privilege and racial Jewish supremacy, if they were to allow Palestinian refugees to return to their homes and properties, this would no longer be a settler colonization state, or it would be a post-settler colonization state that was trying to make reparations for the damage that has inflicted for decades, right? And so I think the reason that BDS is so threatening to the Zionists, right, is because the Zionists get it. I mean, these three principles, if you add them up, they amount to a radical transformation of the Israeli state as we know it. And so the charge that Israel will cease to exist and you're crawling for the destruction of Israel is, of course, all ballyhoo and hoopla. And, you know, it's a kind of hysterical response. But there is a fundamental truth because, in fact, these three principles are tantamount to a transformation of the apartheid colonial nature of the Israeli state as it currently exists. And so that's why I think these principles are really helpful for individuals. So if you see Sabra Hummus in your a store, please ask the manager to stop selling Sabra Hummus and get another equally delicious and perhaps even more, you know, um, uh, uh, delicious Palestinian, Arab, or non-Zionist product. Um, you know, there are there are churches that are divesting um, their um, yes. investments. They're basically canceling investments um, from Israel. This is another sphere um, of divestment, going back to your previous question. Um, and then there's also a sports boycott where, for example, NFL players even are refusing to play in Israel, well, not do, to mention I, countless yeah, musicians yeah. and artists. Exactly. Well, I do want to do, I do want us to get to what we actually can do. Well, you just started down that road giving us the Sabra uh, guidance. So we'll we'll come back mm-hmm. in just a minute. We're talking to uh, Dr. Susanna 
Sunaina Myra. She's a professor of Asian American Studies. She's written a very interesting book called Boycott, The Academy and Justice for Palestine. Please stay with us. We'll be back with you in just a moment. Programming for KSVY is brought to you in part by the Tina Schoen Group, located at Sotheby's International Realty, Body Best Collision Center, and Sonoma Hills Retirement Community. This health moment is brought to you in part by Sonoma Valley Hospital. Scientific research has shown that forgiveness is good for our health. It can help us mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. People who hold on to grudges and grievances and who tend to blame others for their problems have more physical illnesses than those who don't. You can bring greater peace and harmony into your life by choosing to forgive. Remember that forgiveness always starts with ourselves. This means taking responsibility for your hurt and then releasing it. And welcome back to Health Matters. Dr. Ned Hoke today joined by Dr. Sunaina Myra, the author of Boycott, The Academy and Justice for Palestine. Well, forgiveness does sound like a pretty good idea. Um, so I can support that as well. So coming back to, <laughs> coming back to our, our discussion, I, I guess I wanted to, to kind of go next to, um, well, there's several, well, several things, of course. I just, I've got too long a list here and we're not going to be able to get to all of them. <laughs> but I want to li- give our listeners a chance because this is such a, a, an important and deep topic and it has such a meaning for some of us Americans anyway, and hopefully uh, more than me uh, and more than the ones that I know. Uh, so please feel free to, Sunaina Myra will take a question. Mm-hmm. And if you'd be happy to, if, on the topic, we'd be happy to have you call at 707-933-9133. We'll have about 10 minutes for calls should anybody want to have a statement or give a, make a call on this topic. So coming back to my take of the topic here, the, the, um, the enemies of, of, of BDS are, are, are working very hard to try to uh, reje- reject it. And, and what I've heard a lot about over the years, whether I'm listening to Ali Abu Nina, Abu Nima or mm, or Mar right. Bagudi or other people, I, I you you hear over and over of different uh, folks who are in different ways feeling the pushback. But you, you let's start with what pushback that you've experienced, if any, and and then tell us and give our listeners who maybe haven't been attended to this pushback kind of give us an idea of how that's coming at it at individuals like yourself and and how how are you responding to that what 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 do you do yeah you know i think the the backlash against bds has become increasingly vicious um and it's highly organized and very well orchestrated and i would like to suggest by the way that your listeners if they are curious to learn how it operates and how it's connected to the right in the us more generally and to people like Sheldon Adelson and the Koch brothers and others right. should check out a report called the business of backlash and you can google it it's online and it's published by the international jewish anti-zionist networks but they really follow the money. Um, uh, But, you know, the anti-BDS backlash has been funded directly by the Israeli Ministry of the Interior, and so they actually have a program for combating the BDS movement because they realize that it's been effective and very successful. Um, And so I think that what has been, you know, really... Um, challenging is that, um, for example, in the wake of the ASA boycott resolution that I referred to earlier in the American Studies Association, you know, several of us who were advocating for the uh, adoption of the academic boycott got hate mail, we got death threats, um, people have had to alert police and security 
Um, in addition to that, um, you know, there is also a lawsuit against the American Studies Association by several plaintiffs, including Kenneth Markers, who is a Trump's nominee to the Office of Civil Rights, by the way, in the wow. Department of Education. So it's not just a Zionist attack, it's a right-wing attack, and there's a pushback by the right against left academics. Um, I think that in many ways, you know, the Zionist model um, of academic harassment and legal harassment or lawfare has become the template for white nationalist harassment mm-hmm. um, and backlash against progressive academics. So we can sort of connect the dots and see the ways in which this is part of clamping down on social justice activism in the academy. Um, I'm actually one of the defendants in the lawsuit that is being filed by the Zionists, and they have actually tried to smear and defame me and my colleagues um, in the pages of the Washington Post, um, online, um, and make um, allegations, um, you know, that are completely, you know, of course, baseless. um, And, you know, this lawsuit has mostly already been thrown out by um, the court. But I should note that there is also blacklisting and harassment and intimidation by Zionists that happens through programs such as Canary Mission. So Canary Mission is a very shadowy online blacklist that actually personally attacks and smears student activists. I mean, you know, they actually publish personal details of people, pull information off their websites and of their Facebook posts. Um, And this has created a climate of anxiety um, and it has had a really chilling effect on student activism related to BDS in Palestine. Many undergraduate and graduate students are so scared about coming out publicly in support of Palestine and talking about it because they're afraid that um, they might be blacklisted on Canary Mission, that this might affect their chances of getting a job because Canary Mission claims that it will send this information to prospective employers and even graduate admission programs. So I think it's a McCarthyite tactic that relies on bullying. Um, And to me, what's so Um, I think troubling about this is that rather than allowing for an open debate, you know, what Israel is doing and its supporters is trying to clamp down on free speech and academic freedom. So the real threat to academic freedom, as Glenn Greenwald said in The Intercept, um, that it's one of the biggest threats, in fact, you know, to freedom of expression today in the United States. Um, Israel is also officially banned supporters of BDS from entering Israel. So I, for example, um, will be deported if I try to enter Israel, probably. And it has also banned members of several um, Palestinian rights organizations, including, you know, Jewish Voice for Peace, Code Pink. So activists from these groups are being deported and sent back on planes um, for trying to enter Israel. Now, why would Israel want to do that? Why wouldn't Israel come and let people see this wonderful, multicultural, liberal, democratic <laughs> startup nation? Right. right? I mean, they should let people come in and see their growing successes and their brilliant achievements. It's because they don't want people to see the truth. People see the ugliness of the occupation and the wall and the misery of people living in refugee camps that are shanty towns you know, for 70 years. So I think that it's so clear that they have crimes they want to hide, um, and they do not want this uh, to become public knowledge. Otherwise, they would not be enacting, they have their own ban, right? We talk about Trump's ban. Israel has long had an Arab and Muslim ban, and now they have an activist ban. So I think what you're doing on this show, Dr. Hoke, is crucial. And I and I really hope that, you know, your listeners, if they have questions, will call in, and I'm happy to answer them. Right. Well, we're, we don't seem to be lighting up the board just yet, but we just have a couple more minutes. So again, our call-in number is 707-933. 9133. Now, coming coming back to the sort of the worldwide uh, similarity to the politics of boycott in terms of the South African model, 
And then Gandhi as India as an example. I mean, certainly part of what sort of has I read your uh, books, it, what warmed my heart was was your, you know, obviously your obvious embrace of 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 the, the similarity and the and the, the 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 potential upside of all that. And of course, then there's the the Gandhi story, which of course again was a, was a, a, a symbol. And a and a an expression of something that actually worked. So instead of it being something that's sort of this hopeless thing where sort of beaten down people are going, oh well, I guess we're just going to have to t- take this beating. Right. You know this right. the, this. I mean, the, the South African thing is an experience, and and the Indian experience with Gandhi is are, are signs that this this effort can can really uh, really change change the the way things work out. But coming back to your own engagement with this. Um, you went to Palestine in 2012. I'm, I'm I'm led to believe from your book to see what you could see. So tell tell us our listeners now. Those of us who paid any attention to this at all, are you know will probably won't learn too much from what you saw because we see it every day on the television. But for those of our listeners who mm-hmm. don't pay attention to that particular information, briefly tell us a little bit about what you saw and kind of how that further catalyzed you, if you would. Sure. You know, in 2012, I actually helped organize a delegation for some other academics who had never been to Palestine. And that's the delegation of American Studies Scholar that actually catalyzed the boycott resolution after they witnessed, you know, um, the injustices and violence. I myself actually visited Palestine for the first time in 2004. So Mm -hmm. it was actually at the end of the second intifada. And what I saw that was really transformative for me was just like witnessing the strangulation of everyday life, what it means to live in a prison, basically. I mean, Palestinians live in lockdown. They cannot move from city to city. They cannot go visit their grandparents in their hometown. They cannot go and see the sea and spend a day at the beach because Israel has a matrix of control, as it's called, of you know the checkpoints and the Jewish-only um, settler roads and the wall. Um, what I was also really, um, I think, struck by was in the face of this you know, strangulation, the ongoing wars, the threat of um, you know, violence, the um, ongoing imprisonment of, you know, just thousands of Palestinians on a daily basis going in and out of prison and being abused and tortured was the resilience of the people. And there's a concept, um, there's a word in Arabic that Palestinians use, which is samud, which means steadfastness. And I think this resilience of samud, this, you know, determination to stay on the land and to survive speaks to indigenous resistance. And mm-hmm. for me, BDS um um, draws inspiration from Palestinian resistance. And so I think it's also important to note that Palestinians themselves have engaged in boycott campaigns. I mean, it's not that they actually learned it from Gandhi. In fact, in the 1930s, boy, uh, Palestinians were engaging in tax boycotts. In the first intifada, Palestinians engaged in mass civil disobedience and boycotts of Israeli products. Um, And I think this is a little-known history of the boycott that I myself uncovered in my research. Um, But, you know, there's definitely parallels to be made with the South African example, which is, of course, what provided the framework in many ways for the current BDS call. Um, And also right here, the Montgomery bus boycott, the Montgomery um, bus boycott, the UFW farm workers boycott. These are tactics that relatively weak people can use against a powerful enemy, right? The Palestinians do not have the military power, perhaps nor, you know, does this have to be um, a battle 
to, you know, the end of military annihilation. They're using um, a nonviolent strategic tactic um, that the weak can use. So it's really the weapons of the weak, I think, um, and of the oppressed against a very powerful force that cannot necessarily be defeated in a military battle. Exactly. Well, the I guess what's heartwarming for me, or my, among the many things that are heartwarming for me in terms of the way you set this up for us, is that the you 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 show how the larger fabrics of the anti-racial social justice movements worldwide are coalescing around the 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 Palestinian the Israel Palestine situation. Of course, those of us who pay any of attention to this, we see this over and over. But what you sort of reinforce for me is how substantial that is, and how how really. The the for those of us uh, white folks uh, who don't believe that the the path of Mr. Netanyahu mm. and Mr. Trump and people like that mm. who want to be uh, what they are choosing to be uh, in terms of leading mm. the country we 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 the, the tools that we have we don't have uh, we don't have the immediate thing in front at least in my experience we don't have the the uh, the, the social construct is what I'm really trying to say and and mm. BDS provides a social construct of uh, to, to kind of re-energize which I'm hoping right. the the whole our in our whole society who care about this topic will be energized by this 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 coalition not only of the BDS but the, all that the BDS brings about it and so I guess that mm -hmm. and and the thing is the other thing is that the last thing I kind of wanted to say about the, for my notes here anyway is that there's a thing called the Palestinian exception to the first amendment of the US Constitution I'm kind of kind of going back but it's a cute phrase mm -hmm. that that mm -hmm. talks about how that 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 there's an expectation our our news media and so on and and you ac academic folks and so on if if you bring up the p word, this is trouble. Mm -hmm. And and you and you're so say a little bit about the the uh, the the First Amendment and how the Constitution has is being mm -hmm. violated by this uh, this exception. Mm -hmm. Right, and you know I have to note that really tragically that phrase was coined by a Palestinian American scholar who was fired from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign because of Zionist pressure during the war on Gaza, right. um, and who has since been driven out of the academy. His name is Stephen Salaita, and he's published numerous books. He's a very brilliant and prolific scholar, and I think he was trying to point out to the fact that this, there's a Palestine exception to freedom of expression, because you can talk about the Rohingya in Myanmar, you can talk about the Congo, you can talk about the Sudan. I mean, maybe not, we don't talk about it enough, but there's only one issue, frankly, for which you might lose your job, or you might not get a promotion, or you might not get a fellowship in the United States today. And I think, you know, the effects of Canary Mission and Blacklist, the effects of Zionist intervention often behind closed doors are having a really chilling effect and violating First Amendment rights to freedom of expression. And so I think that this kind of exceptionalism is what BDS challenged. Fundamentally, the aim of the boycott, we may not be able to deshelve all the Sabra Hamas in the U.S. and on airplanes, we may not be able to end all the study abroad Israel in Israel programs um, in the near future. But I think it does shatter the lockdown on open and honest debate about um, Palestine and Israel. And I think that's fundamentally what the aim of BDS is, to enlarge conversations, to have discussions like the one you and I are having on the airwaves. Um, and I think, as you noted, Dr. Hogue, this is a very important point that I'm glad you're also um, introducing to conclude our conversation, is that it's a, BDS is a social justice movement that's connected to anti-racist, feminist, labor, queer, 
um, environmentalist um, and anti-policing and other social justice movements. So it's really a part of joint struggles at this point so that, you know, to be progressive, you know, hopefully, you know, we no longer have this label progressive except on Palestine or PEP operating on the left right. here because it has operated for too long. I think now it's switching and to be progressive, you should support Palestinian rights and Palestinians deserve human rights just as other human beings do. So I think we're getting to that point and I think BDS has played a huge role in creating more space um, in the face of this taboo. Exactly. Well, for our listeners who want to know more of your work, how do they how do they reach out and hear more of you and, and hear what you're doing? Do you have a, a website or a blog or anything like sure. that where people, yeah, go ahead. I would really recommend that um, anyone who is interested in this topic, please check out um, the website for U.S. ACPI, in which a lot of my own talks and writings are also posted. It's www dot usacbi.org that's usacbi.org and if you feel moved to support the academic and cultural boycott or have been thinking of doing so you can also endorse the academic and cultural boycott that's a very small step that people can take we also have you know ideas of other campaigns that people can join um, and there's several publications there by mem- my, my wonderful fellow organizers that also I think illuminate um, you know BDS campaigns and work and the um, issues in Palestine. I delight, I'm delighted with your work. It's been a joy to spend this time with you. Thank you for taking some time for us today. It's been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Hoke. What you're doing is so important. So I and many, many people, including in Palestine, are very grateful. All right. Take care now. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. And that's it. We'll see you next week.